We're going to go ahead and read our scripture for today. We're going to be in a couple of places, or three places in the book of Mark. Um, We're going to be in Mark 3, and then Mark 1, and then Mark 8. And I'll kind of try to indicate which verses we'll be in as we go along. We're going to start in uh, Mark 3, verses 13 through 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then we're going to jump to Mark 1, verses 16 through 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And then we're going to be in Mark 8, 34 through 37. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Okay, let's pray together. Jesus, um, would you please speak to us and show us what you mean by these things? Um, We want to learn who you are and draw close to you. Help us to enjoy the view, enjoy watching you, enjoy studying you. May you capture our minds, our hearts um, again and again and again and again. Stir us, God. Um, You are life. Lord, guide us through this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We've been going through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, um, like in my prayer, in order to observe Jesus to watch him and to study Jesus, to know who he is, what are the things that makes him happy and excited and those types of things. We want to get to know the person of Jesus because Christianity is um, more than knowing about Jesus. It's not less than that, but it's more than knowing about Jesus. Christianity is knowing someone, knowing a person, knowing Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're doing together. Um, And one of the ways that we can do this is by fighting our inclination, fighting our temptation to take Jesus to lift him out of his historical context, out of his cultural context. We have a tendency to read this passage um, in a very modern way or read the Bible in a modern way. And you'd be surprised how subconsciously our brains tend to fill in um, the gaps without even knowing it. Your brain, when you're 
reading this, when you're listening to this, when you read the Bible on your own, your brain is filling in the gaps with things from your culture, things that you've learned from Sunday school, from TV shows, pop culture, all of those things. Uh, Scholars call it pre-understanding. And it's something that all of us have. All of us have that. So part of what we do when we read the Bible is we have to deconstruct that. We have to let the Bible tell us what's going on rather than ourselves. And, and several times when, you, I, when I um, at times have taught students how to study the Bible, I try to give the metaphor of the Bible kind of slapping your wrist gently, lovingly a little bit. You tend to think one way and the Bible goes, ah, that's sweet, but it's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's great. It's even biblical, but that's not what I'm saying right here. And we're trying to stay true to what the Bible and the impression that the gospel writers are giving us about Jesus. And here's the reality. If you were a Jew living in the first century in Palestine um, and you experienced Jesus in a synagogue, you ran into Jesus on the street, chances are you would think of Jesus, you would put him in the category of a teacher, of a rabbi. That's how you would, in fact... uh, Out of the 90 or so interactions that Jesus has with people throughout the four Gospels, 60-ish of them, those people referred to him as rabbi. That's how they understood him. That was the context. And here's what I want to say. We tend to think of that as like uh, Superman and Clark Kent, that that was just kind of his, that was just his cover for who he really was who he really is. He's much more than a rabbi. And it's true. He is much more than a rabbi. And yet, um, a rabbi is how he chose to present himself to the world. Uh, The idea of a rabbi, the idea of a teacher is how he chose to clothe himself, to bring himself to our minds because it, it, it is supposed to evoke certain ideas when it comes to Jesus that we're, that we're not supposed to get rid of. We in the West, unfortunately, We've kind of, we, when we think of Jesus, that's probably not the first thing that we think of. A rabbi, a teacher, something like that. Um, so today we want to spend a little bit of time on that. It's obviously very important for the gospel writers to present Jesus as rabbi. That's important. So, um, and, the, and the reason it's important is because it has major ramifications to how you are relating to Jesus. It's a nuanced type of a thing. It's semantics. We're splitting hairs. But those little adjustments of how we have come to believe, how we have come, the things that we emphasize about Jesus and the things that we minimize about Jesus, that we de-emphasize, the accents, what we put forward tend to tweak ever so slightly our view of Jesus And so our exercise today is to get back to what the gospel writers were trying to say. And because they presented him as rabbi, we need to get into that. For example, notice that Jesus, here's, let me tweak with you a little bit. Notice that in any of these passages, Jesus does not say, hey, believe in me so you can go to heaven when you die. You won't find that in these passages. He doesn't say that at all, and yet that's typically what we think of in, Christi- in the West when we think of Christianity. Instead, the invitation of Jesus is to follow him as a rabbi. Now, look, 
I'm not putting that down. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this is eternal life, that you believe in the one God sent. Absolutely. In John 3.16, Jesus says to Nicodemus, believe, you know, those who believe in me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. I'm not playing that down, but what we tend to do is we tend to take those verses, those famous ones, and we, we, we put an emphasis on that. We lean on that rather than getting a holistic, full picture of who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him as followers of Jesus. So let's take a few moments. Let me, let me, uh, let me take a few moments to frame this up for you, discipleship, so that we can get a better idea of what this means for us because it still has incredible, incredible implications of what it means for us today. The word disciple um, in the Greek is mathetes. That's what it means in the Greek language, mathetes. And we've translated the word as disciple, as follower, as student, right? Um, But most scholars these days are saying the best word that we have in the English language to get the idea of mathetes across is is the word apprentice or the idea of an apprenticeship. The other words don't quite do it. A student implies that you go to a class and, you learn, and you're trying to learn a body of knowledge about something, and once you've mastered it, you've got going. That doesn't quite do what Jesus is trying to say here. A follower, for us, it's like we're following Jesus on Instagram or something. It doesn't quite do it. An apprentice gets, gets closer to it. Now, this idea of, apprentice, of apprenticeship was the entire backbone of the educational system in the first century, in ancient times, and even before that. What's that? I'll, I'll, I'm going to tell you. Just hang on to your seats. I'm going to let you exactly let you know what an apprentice is. Um, but for now, you need to know it was that this this um, apprenticeship model is the is the backbone of the educational system. And this was going on long before Jesus. Discipleship is not a Jesus idea, okay? Um, As a matter of fact, uh, Plato was the disciple of Socrates. This isn't a Greek idea, and most of the ancient world was built on this idea. But in the Jewish world, there were basically three levels of education around this, and this will answer your question, Renee. Um, until you were about 11 or 12, when you were in that society, every child attended something called uh, Bet Sefer, which means house of the book, okay? And it would basically, it would be your grade school today, basically. It would be, it's a general um, comparison. It was essentially the ancient equivalent of a grade school. You'd learn to read, write, you'd learn basic arithmetic. But by far, the number one goal of this school was that you would memor- that you would, by the time you were done, you'd memorize the Torah. Think about that. By the time you were 11 or 12 in Jesus' day, every child, every kid had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized in their mind. Is that for real? That's for real. I'm not kidding. That's historic. Okay, not, it's, it's historic fact. Now, it was an oral society, so maybe that'll make us feel a little bit better, but still, that's, that's what they did by the time they were 11 or 12. Now, at that point, for most people, school was over. School was done. By the time you were 11 or 12, for most people, if you were a boy, you went home, you, uh, and your dad became your, your, your tutor, and he would teach you the family business because you were going to take over when he, when he died. If you, were a, if you were a woman, you would get married around 12 
and you'd start to bear children uh, soon after that. Okay, that's how it worked. Now, but for the best of the best of the best out of that school, um, they went on to, they could go on to another school called uh, Bet Talmud, which is House of Learning. This was a school that was built right off of the synagogue. It was only for boys. Girls couldn't go. Um, And it was for boys ages 12 to 14. And you would learn directly from a teacher or a full-time scribe that was there at the synagogue from 12 to 14. And the main objective for these three years, are you ready for this, Paul? The main objective for, the, for the, these three years was to memorize the entire Old Testament. So for these, by the time you were 14, you would have Genesis to Malachi memorized. Yeah, right, right, that's nothing. These guys had it down, okay? That's how it went. Now, most boys after that, after that was done, then they would go to the family, to back to their home, back to their family, and they would learn the family business, and they would take over, or they would get married and have, uh, start having children of their own and, and learn a trade and all of those types of things. But for the best of the best of the best of the best of bet. Talmud, you would go on to become a mathetes. And that was hard. You would, be, you would become a disciple, an apprentice of a rabbi. And it was, it, that was hard to get into. It was a grueling interview process. You had to find the rabbi that you wanted, or at least a pool of rabbis that you were interested in following, and you would apply to them. Your parents would sometimes get involved and maybe even offer some money or those types of things. But the the interview process was extremely grueling. He would sit you down several times. It was more than one interview. And he would grill you on your knowledge of the Bible, um, the Torah, the Mishnah, uh, Jewish history, your um, your acumen, uh, your character, all of it. It would go on and on and on and on and on. And finally, by the time this interview process was over, if a rabbi thought that you had what it took. If he thought that you had, that he wanted you on his team, he would turn to you and at some point say something like, all right, follow me. Come follow me. That was the term they used. And that meant you're in. You're in. Okay. Um, And if you were chosen, if you were chosen, this is like, you know, the NFL. You know, these are the, the, you know, only the best of the best go from high school to college and only the best of the best of the best of those go from there to the NFL and only the best of the best of the best of those get off the bench and actually play a few games you know this is this is like the we're we're getting razor's edge here on skill and thinking and if you were chosen by a rabbi you had three goals of following a rabbi and this is what what you find in our text this is why I chose all of those texts you can see them all there you had three goals if you were going to apprentice under a rabbi number one was simply and if you're you should write this down number one it was just to be with your rabbi that's it simply to be here's what this means this was a 24-7 gig when he said come follow me he did not say Okay, I'm teaching, I'm teaching at the local synagogue from 7 in the morning till, you know, till 3 with a one-hour break in between. Make it to that. That's not what he said. He said, follow me. You would sleep next to your rabbi. 
You would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner along with your rabbi. You would learn, you would watch your rabbi. You talk with your rabbi. You would see how he dealt with his family. You would see how he raised his kids. You would see how he dealt with society. You would see how he did business transactions. You would watch every detail, almost every detail about the man's life. You were with him. In fact, there was a saying uh, in the ancient world that said, uh, like a blessing that said, may, may, you, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That's what they, and what they meant was, because it was dirt roads, rabbis were itinerant, so they'd walk around everywhere, and their disciples would follow them around, and if you were a good disciple, you were, you were covered in the dust of your rabbi. You, in other words, you were going wherever he went, you were, be, you were immersing yourself in this man's world. Um, so, there was virtually no area of life that he did not allow you access to. He was basically saying, you are in my inner, inner circle. That's why, um, you know, this explains a lot. When Jesus, is to, Jesus would preach or he would speak and, and give parables, his disciples had the freedom to come to him and say, what did that mean? And he would say, here's what it means. We're talking about Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, and he gives a, a whole string of parables, and the disciples come afterwards and say, what does that mean? He gave them access to him. Here's what it means. Let me go, go deeper with you. Okay. Secondly, the second goal was to become like your rabbi, was to become like him. Um, okay, this is hard for us because we live in such an individualistic society that we actually have laws around copying people. But, then, but there, it was expected that you are becoming like your rabbi. You were trying to copy your rabbi. They would dress the same. They would... Um, they would look the same. In fact, a rabbi would go around from town to town with what was called a yoke. That was a, an ancient euphemism for the way he looked at Torah, the way his theology, the way he was interpreting life in Torah. And he would say, take my yoke upon you. In other words, look at life the way I look at life. Think the way I think. Interact with people the way I interact with people. This is a very... Um, it, was, it was expected that you were going to become a carbon copy if you could, like your rabbi. You're saying, I want to take on this tradition and make it my own. And I want it to radically change who I am into somebody else, into this, this rabbi. Okay? It was expected. They were trying to be him. Okay? Um, finally, you're finally, and this is, we go back to the simple idea of apprenticeship, your goal was just to do what he did, right? You can see this in chapter 3 of our text. Um, look at verse 13 of chapter 3. It says, and he went up on the mountain and he called to them those who he wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12. Why? Look at number one, that they might be with him. What a beautiful sentence. That was the reason he chose them. Verse 14, that they might be with him and, number two, that he might send them out to preach, to have power to heal sicknesses and to, and to cast out demons. In other words, to do what Jesus has been doing this whole time. It's, it's a very simple yet profound idea of uh, apprenticeship. See, the goal was for you to one day become a rabbi yourself in the very same yoke or tradition that the rabbi, of the rabbi that you, were, that you were following. The idea was that 
his ministry to you would, out, would be transcendent, would, would outlast him, that even when he died, he would know that he would be moving on in his disciples. Are you though You Christians right now, you're putting all these things together, aren't you? It's filling, it's filling things out. And at, one, at some point, um, at some point, the rabbi would turn to his disciples when he thought that that disciple was ready, and he would say, okay, now go make disciples. It was, a, it, was a, it was a thing. It was a tagline. It was a phrase. Now go meant disciples. And that meant you're now your own rabbi. Now you go do what you've seen me do. And get your own students and teach them. And on and on and on this yoke would go. And we've short-circuited that in the church. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, we have short-circuited that. Or diluted it or, or uh, minimized it by highlighting other things. Absolutely, and we're, we'll get into all of that. So, um, let's get into it. What does this mean for us? With that in mind, now that I've kind of teased that out for you a little bit, with that in mind, what does that mean for us? Well, let's go back. Number one, it means to be an apprentice, to, call, to answer the call of following Jesus for you and me. It means, number one, our goal is to just be with Jesus. That's what it means for you. To be with Jesus. This is the first, and I would argue, the most important part of discipleship, of apprenticeship. The idea that we spend every waking moment with Jesus Christ. It means that we're practicing the awareness of Jesus' presence in our life at all times. Not just on Sundays, not just for the 15 minutes of devotion in the beginning of the day, not just wherever it is we like to compartmentalize and, 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 and parse this out, we're to, we're to practice the presence of Jesus all the time. It means that we sleep next to him. It means that we eat with him. It means that we do everything in between in his, in his presence. But how does this work? Valid question. I know all of us should be asking that. How does this work since that he's, it's hard. He's, he's not here in the flesh. How does it work? It's hard to practice it. Well, um, we don't have time to go into it all the way, but if you read John 14, 15, and 16, it's basically Jesus answering this, this question, and we find that it's through relationship with the Spirit of Jesus. How do we practice the presence of Jesus? It's through the relationship a relationship and awareness and a connection to the spirit of Jesus. The most important goal of an apprenticeship is to live in constant awareness and connection to the Holy Spirit of Jesus all day long. Because we're following him. May the dust of your rabbi be all over yourself. <laughs> you know, may you be soaked in the dust of your rabbi. Church. This is what Jesus meant in John 15 when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. The word abide there is meno in the Greek. It literally means reside. In other words, live with me. That's what it means. Make me your home. Process life with me, through me. Make me your home. Uh, I was listening to a sermon this week and he, he, uh, the pastor uh, quoted a quote from Dallas Willard that I thought was just so perfect. 
with what we're talking about. It says this. Listen to this. I thought this was great. It says, the first and most basic thing that, that we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls, he says. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. Isn't that so true? We have to kind of bring it back, bring it back, bring it back. He goes on, in the early time of our practicing, and we're gonna get into this word practice, in the early time of our practicing, we may be challenged by our burdensome habits on dwelling on things less than God. Can we say, yeah, amen to that? Look what he says, though. He says, but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and therefore can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. And he's simply pointing the idea here that to live this way takes practice. It takes practicing. That's why the, you know, there's, um, he's referring to an ancient little book called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And it's all about that. We, we practice. This is what, what the practice of Jesus, or the practices of Jesus. Have you heard of that phrase? The practices of Jesus is an ancient phrase. We've come, we, well, we've retagged it or rebranded it as the, the spiritual disciplines. This is, this is what they're all about. This is how, this is how Christians for millennia have practiced the presence of God through these practices and disciplines like silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, scripture, Sabbath, living in a community. All of those things are practices. They're not popular in our time. I think they're not popular in our time. We were saying we've, we've this is one of the ways that we have um, undercut all of this is because they're rules um, and we've made them ends in and of themselves. You know, like, hey, I prayed today. Well, good for you, right? I went to church. Well, hey, I read my Bible. I got up early and read my Bible. Well, great, <laughs> you know, but the reality is those are not ends in and of themselves. They're a means to an end. We do those things to be with Jesus, that's the point. And if you put it, if you think of it that way, they're not ends in and of themselves, they're means to an end. They become exciting realities in our lives. We, we come before God in the morning, before we turn our phone on, before we watch the news, before we check our schedule, before we make those calls, before we do those other things. We wake up, we get a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, we find a quiet place and we present ourselves to the Lord. We say, here I am. I'm with you. Even, okay, even when we're distracted, we're distracted with him, see? Because the point is to be with Jesus. I heard a, another preacher talk about this idea, um, you know, I, I, dealing with the idea of distraction because we're always distracted, are we not? I remember when I used to start to practice getting up early with, with the Lord, I'd still be in a half quasi dream state. <laughs> I'd be praying and all, in my prayers and all of a sudden like a squirrel would go by and I'd go, oh, oh, okay, Lord, I'm back because I was still sleeping, <laughs> 
And I used to feel so guilty about that. Or if I had a lot going on that day or if I was dealing with some kind of drama in my life, I couldn't shut my brain off. I couldn't stop it from thinking about that person or that, that place or what I needed to do. What do I do with that? And Chuck Smith used to say, do it with the Lord. Tell him about your distractions. Do it in his presence. And then another person used to say, um, it's like a dad, the, the, the Lord is like a, a father who just wants to be with his kids. And, and you know, there's this picture of a, of, a, of a kid that comes and sits on the dad's lap and they can't sit still and they're not enjoying it and they wanna, they're fidgety and they're wanting to do other things. And yet the dad just loves that that child is there with him. We practice his presence. We give ourselves grace and we come. And the more we practice, the better it will get. And I'll, I'll, I hope to return to that in a second. These are time, but my point is, these are time-tested ways of being in constant connection and awareness of the Spirit of Jesus. Um, and they're not, means, they're not an end, they're a means to an end. Secondly, um, our goal is to be like Jesus. Our goal is to be like him. We want to be like our rabbi. It's really, really simple. And what are we talking about here? When we talk about wanting to be like Jesus, basically, well, the Christian word for this is the term sanctification. That's what it's talking about. The Christian word is sanctification, and this is, this is not an event. This is a process. Uh, John Mark Comer says, this is the process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. I'm going to read that again because I thought it was beautiful. This is the process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke, there's that word for you, the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Now, sanctification and transformation are not, here's what you need to understand. Sanctification and transformation are not Christian terms. Well, it's a Christian term, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not only for Christians. My point is, everyone's being sanctified. This is a human thing. This is not a Christian thing. Everyone's being transformed. Um, in our culture, we like to think of the human identity and human character as something static that already is in there somehow, and we just need to discover Almost like an Eastern idea. There is a true self in there somewhere that's been buried under layers and layers of garbage and we just need to take the onion layers off the garbage and find that beautiful, pure, innocent self that's really within there. The Bible would say, no, 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 no. You're actually, you're, you are not static as a human. You are dynamic. You are changing. You are transforming. You are being sanctified by someone or something the question is, who's your, who's your master? Who are you following? You can't help it. In fact, the moment you stop changing people, the moment you stop transforming is the moment you, stop, you lose your humanity. You stop being human according to the Bible. You either become more augured in to what you've already believed or whatever. And how many people in here can, I mean, I can just tell you I'm a different person than I was three years ago. I look back at uh, my calling time. Can anybody relate to that? We, we, we're changing. We're moving. We're, and it's dynamic. The question is, what's forming us? What's changing us? You're being sanctified by something. 
what or who or what is discipling you. This is why Christians pay attention to how much time we're spending with certain kinds of people, with the kind of media that we're in ta- that we're taking in, with the um, what we're, we we are, um, you know, just like. People are, that are very health conscious with the kind of foods that they take into their bodies. Christians, because they know it has, what you take in has ramifications. Christians know that, we know that what we take in around us is not something to be taken lightly. The things that we choose to watch on TV, the things that we choose to listen to, the ideas that we choose. Now, this has gone to extremes and basically said, let's live in a commune and bury our heads in the sand. But the idea behind it is a heart, a heart that says, this will have an impact on me. So the more time that we're spending uh, reading the news or watching the series on Netflix or whatever it might be, you need to understand that's not nothing. It's like someone yesterday who I was hanging out with yesterday told me that he eats the 20-piece chicken nuggets with nothing else from McDonald's every day for years. Is he dead? He's almost dead. I, feel, I think he's dying. But, you know, to, to think that that's not going to have any... I, I knew another guy, Dave and I knows a guy named Dave, who says, I just never drink water. And I'm fine with it. Like he's the, like he's the somehow, the, he's the exception to the rule. Someday, the guy is going to fall over and we're going to go, yeah, it's about right. <laughs> you know, you know that what you do, the same is true with what we think. The same is true with what we're taking in. The same is true with what you're listening to, what you're watching, what you're ingesting in your heart and your mind. It is discipling you. So Christians, we practice the presence of Jesus. The idea is that Jesus isn't one of many options that's not the idea. Like, we, like, like the apps on our phone. We have a, an app, a calculator app for when we do math. We have a, a travel app for when we book tickets. Then we have a Bible app for when we want to be Christians. And we, you know, and we have this kind of, he's one of many things on, on the apps of our hearts. No, 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 no. Jesus is the software system. He is the, he is the program running it all. That's the idea. And we permeate ourselves in Jesus. We practice his presence 24-7 because we... I want transformation. Don't you? Isn't that why, what we signed up for? I want to be different. I want to be changed. I don't want uh, just my, hate, my behaviors to be modified, although I could, I, I mean, I wouldn't say no to it. My behaviors do need modification, but I want more than that. I want everything that God wants for me. I want to be transformed. We're talking about an overhaul from the inside out. That's what it means to be transformed in in the presence of Jesus. That's what I want. I want that. I really do. And so how do we we change? How do we get that? By By being with him all the time. Sociologists tell us that you are You are the way you are right now because of your family, because of who you spend the most time with. They're finally catching up to the Bible. The Bible is saying, yeah, community, man. That's why we have the practice of community. That's why we're trying to be together for Thanksgiving meals and home groups and trying to get all that going because we we want to practice the presence of Jesus in community. It's super important. Okay, thirdly, our goal 
as followers of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, if we're going to answer this call, our goal is that we would do what he would do if he were us. That's the idea. This is the goal. We want to do what Jesus do, did, would do if he had our lives. And this is just really simply how apprenticeship works. Those of you that work in the trades, you get how this works. This is what makes a trade job different than a normal job. If someone signs up to apprentice, that means this is what I want to do with my life. This isn't just to pay the bills right now. This is going to be my career. So I want to learn to do it so that I can go out and do it, right? Anybody that apprentices under Paul, they're hoping to go out someday apart from Paul, and build houses on their own like Paul would. That's why they're there. That's the whole point of an apprenticeship. And that's what, that's what it comes to with us. That's the idea behind a trade. What are, so let me ask you, what are some things that Jesus did? Let's name them out. What are some things that we see Jesus doing? He doesn't take the bait. What do you, what do you mean? When he's confronted by the religious dudes. Yep. Yeah, so he confronts back. Yeah, yeah I, would say, I, I, would, I would say Jesus confronts corruption. He's confronting corruption. When it, when it confronts him, he confronts it back. Okay, and what else do we see Jesus do? He heals people. Yeah, what else? Yep. I, I will say not just serves them. Jesus is constantly eating meals with people far from God. He's always up for a free meal with someone that didn't know, that someone that didn't know God. Constantly. And in fact, scholars call it his table ministry. In other words, it was, it, was a, it was an actual way that he ministered was by eating with people that didn't, know, that, that didn't agree with him. Anything else? I mean, there's a basic one. He preached. He went around preaching the gospel. He didn't just use his actions. He did, but he used his mouth. He was telling people about the kingdom of God, right? What about casting out demons? What's that? I'm sorry, I still couldn't hear you. He welcomed people, absolutely. He welcomed people. He stood up against corruption. He did justice. All of those things. Is this what you think of when you think of your goal in apprenticeship? When you're thinking of yourself as a follower of Jesus, just like if I apprenticed under Paul, I'm thinking someday I've got a, a path. Someday I'm going to be, be able to build a house from the, from the beginning to the end. Do you have a goal in mind for your following Jesus? Do you think, I'm doing this to be with him, to become like him, and someday I'm gonna do what he, I'm not saying the next day you're just gonna raise the dead or something, but, I'm, but eventually you're learning that someday you're going to be doing what Jesus did. Is that what we think of? These are the goals. Mostly, what is discipleship? What is the Jesus style of discipleship? This does set him apart from other 
the ancient model. Look at verse, uh, let me jump to chapter 8, verse 34. This is why I put it in our screen. Then he called the crowd to him with his disciples and said, here it is. Whoever wants to be my disciple, here's your calling, folks, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. This is where we're going. It's a call... um, the song just popped into my head. What is it? Uh, oh, the wonderful cross bids me to come and die to find that I may truly live. What's the call? It bids me to come and die. Jesus, this is what scholars call a cruciform way of living, the cruciformity of Christianity. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross was not just, some, not just an event in history that caused redemption for everybody. It is. But it's also the model by which that redemption is propagated throughout the earth. By us following that same model, we die to ourselves. We die to our selfishness. We go the extra mile. We do what, we're, um, we, do what, we, don't, what, what we don't really want to do for each other, for society, for the world around us. We're apprenticing under Jesus. We're following him. Because that's what he did for us. And when we understand that that's what he did for us, I mean, feel it. He died so that I can live. It's hard to reconcile with a God like that without doing it ourselves without becoming like him ourselves. Now here, what are some implications of this for us? Let me, let, let's, I just wanna f- finish up by being practical here. What are some implications? Well, the first thing that you're going to notice, or you've probably already noticed, that what we're describing here is not a hobby. It's the first thing we need to reckon with this morning. What we're describing here is not a hobby. This is not an, in addition to normal life. But it completely frames and reframes how we go about normal life. See, in, some, in certain ways, nothing changes. You know, you still have to go to work. You still got to pick up the kids. You still got to pay the bills. You still got to go grocery shopping. You still got to do all the things that you do. So in a certain respect, nothing changes. But you don't have to become a full-time vocational minister or, or missionary out in, out in you know, Uganda. Or you don't necessarily have to do those things. In other, in an, but in another sense, do you see? In another sense, everything changes. Everything's different. In other words, this changes the way you do all those things. It changes the way you go to work, the way you pay your bills, the way you are honest with people around you, the way you're a neighbor, the way you're a husband, the way you're a wife, the way you're a, a, a child, a member of your household. It changes everything. Everything deeply. It gives you a new quality. We're talking about a new operating system, a new fuel that's in your tank that's fueling all the things that you've done before. Everything changes. Does this sound like, does this description from the Gospels, and this is permeated throughout, does this describe 
going to church once a week, maybe even giving some money and taking a class on Wednesdays or, or Fridays. Does that what discipleship sounds like to you? Yeah, please say no, thank you, because that means I've done my job. This, I'm trying to tear that thing apart because it's not accurate, okay? This, is, this means everything. Okay, notice, notice, this is the second thing. The invitation here is not to become a Christian. The invitation is to become a disciple. Okay? Uh, the word Christian, I'm a fan of it. I wear it. I'm a Christian. But I, I also am, am, am not naive to know that it, it's not really a New Testament word. In fact, do you, know how many times the, the, do you know how many times the New Testament uses the word Christian? Three. Three times. And it's all uh, derogative. It's, o, it's always to make fun of Christians. Oh, you Christian type of a thing. And eventually the church took it on and wore it proudly. That's how it came about. But this wasn't a Jesus word, okay? It wasn't a Jesus word. Um, he says, whoever wants to be, be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He, in other words, if you want to become like Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, Okay? If you want to become like Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Now, for people in Seattle, when you tell them that you're a Christian, they think of someone, probably, I think this is, I mean, obviously, this is my best guess. In Seattle, if you say that you're a Christian to somebody, they're probably thinking of, of someone who believes the basic tenets of a religion that we call Christianity. You're somewhat moral, and you go to church semi-regularly. Okay? You go to a thing called church on a semi-regular basis. Um, now, you might not mean that when you say that you're a Christian, but that's probably how that hits people if you were, if you were to say that. Um, as of 2020, 70% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. 70%. Well, let me ask you. Does it seem like 70% of our population are apprenticing after Jesus? I mean, it doesn't seem, can you imagine if 70% of Americans were following, apprenticing Jesus? Can you imagine things would change at that point? <laughs> our nation would change. It would be very, we wouldn't need to protest really. It would just, things would start to change. Values would start to be different. People would, 70%, we'd be a very different place. Um, in post-Christian cities like Seattle, we're, we're in a very post-Christian city, I think something like 8%, 7% say that they're followers of Jesus. The point is, here's my point. There's 70% of people who say they're Christians. Here's my point. We have created a culture in this country in which someone can, can be a Christian and not a follower of Jesus. And that is completely foreign and alien to the description of being a follower of Jesus in the Bible. That's the reality. We've, we've divorced the two ideas that there's one level of belief and then another level of those that are really like devoted, the followers. 
Jesus' invitation was, believe in me and come follow me. Will we answer the call? Finally, the implication is this, and this is, what I already know, I, this is what I already noted, but I want to explore it a little bit more. This takes practice. It takes practice. I was listening to a sermon uh, where the guy used a great analogy. I just thought it was wonderful, so I'm going to steal it. He, uh, and it's biblical. You know, Paul, Paul likened the Christian life like to athletics, to someone who, um, you know, to, who works on something. Let's, I mean, let's say that you are overweight, have diabetes, and really bad asthma, and then yet after the service today, someone prophetically says that you're going you're gonna to run a marathon. You're going to run 26.2 miles. And you're very overweight, you have asthma, and you, you have diabetes. Does this mean, what, now what would happen if tomorrow you tried to run a marathon? What would happen? You would die, right? You might get a few miles and then die. Um, you know, if maybe if the church jogged alongside you and said, you can do it, you could, you, maybe you could make it a little more miles and then die. But at some point, you're going to die, right? But... Here's the thing, almost everybody in here could run a marathon if you practice. See, it's not about trying hard, it's about practicing hard. The idea is if you got up, if you, you know, is anybody trained for a marathon in here? Okay, no one, me neither. Okay, one person, yeah, let's climb the Columbia Tower, jogged up there in lightning speeds, I'm sure. Um, what you do is you you keep, you, like you run a mile one week and then the next week you add on another mile and then the next week you add on another mile to your, what you, they call your long run and you keep practicing all day but then on your long run you add a mile, you add, then you take a break, you get to four miles, you take a break and then it's six miles, seven miles and by the time of six months, a year goes by, you've been steadily practicing before you know it, you're up to 14 miles, 16 miles, closing to 20 miles now why? Is it because you're some superhuman? No, it's because you practiced hard. You took it and you practiced. You made a lifestyle out of it. That's the idea. But that's the way the Bible describes Christi uh, Christianity, the Christian walk or sanctification. Jesus, and we get this idea of the way of Jesus. In fact, sorry, I, I forgot to tell you. How does Jesus describe, if he doesn't use the word Christian, what does he call us? He uses it, he uses, and throughout the New Testament, we are known as people of the way people of the way and what it means is in the greek you can actually it means a road or a path that's going somewhere the way of jesus we're practicing the way of jesus we are members of the way he what was jesus doing he was teaching a way of life come follow me i'll show you how i'll show you how i'd do it In fact, his most famous sermon, arguably, I think, where he describes, basically, it's, it's a one-stop shopping place for everything that he would say often. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. And in the beginning of that sermon, I don't have it printed, but in the beginning of that sermon, at the end of that sermon, you will see Jesus using the term, who at the end is most powerful. He says, whoever 
Therefore, whoever practices these things is likened to someone that builds their house on a solid foundation. Whoever hears these things and practices these things, and he uses the same term in the beginning of the sermon, he's talking about practices. And it's unfortunate when scholars say, oh, the Sermon on the Mount is to prove that you can never do it. Actually, that's not true. You can do it. It's actually an extremely honest and raw sermon. It assumes, it assumes that you have anger. It assumes that there's bitterness. It assumes that you want to divorce your spouse or maybe already have. It, assume, it assumes that you struggle with lust. It assumes with all these things. And you see, these are the practices of a Christian. And what does it mean? It means to practice them. And unfortunately, I think we've become a so I think here's to answer Paul's question. I think we've lost sight of what it means to be a disciple because we've lost sight of Jesus as a rabbi. This is how he framed himself. And he said, he, did, he primarily did not say, hey, everyone believe in me and I'll see you later and then you'll die and go to heaven and I'll, see you, I'll meet you there. He said, follow me. Follow me. Be with me. Become like me. And do what I would do if I, if I were you. And these are things that we practice. And so that's the first thing. I think we've lost the cultural moorings of how the Bible, in this case, on, that's on my iPad, but the Bible is trying to show you Jesus Christ. He's a rabbi. And he's inviting you not to become a Christian, although he is, but you know what I mean, but to follow, you, follow him. And then secondly, we poo-poo disciplines and duties and things like that. Oh, it's legalistic. It's whatever it might be. Oh, you guys, just like what we were saying last week, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, these are gifts to you. And we have a way in our heart of twisting it and making it burden, duty. Oh, we are saved from that. Listen, it's not by how you get saved, but it's how you live to, become, to, live to your full potential, that transformation that we're all looking for. So here's some things that I would encourage you to do. We, and we're kind of following a theme. Last week I challenged you to have a Sabbath in your life. By faith, block out some time, 24 hours, where you stop, you cease. And the idea is to rest and worship. You come before God and you rest and worship. You recreate, you you spend time with each other, in the, but you do it in the presence of God. You remember that. I also want to challenge you to take up these, time, these age-old disciplines that Christians have been following for millennia so that they can get to know Jesus. They can be with him all the time. Pray. And I mean like wake up early and spend some even distracted time to start your day. Come back and try to practice his presence throughout the entire day. If you get distracted and you forget, it's okay. You're practicing and you'll get better and you'll get better and get better. But when you find out that you haven't talked or you haven't thought above or talked to Jesus in a while, don't beat yourself up. Just come back to maybe what I do. I go in my room, I shut the door and I just go, okay, I'm back, Lord. Here I am. Let me see you. Let me see you. You don't even have to go into a room. You can just close your eyes and I'm back. It's just bringing yourself back. Your mind, when you bring your mind before God, your mind is the portal to your entire being. 
You bring your mind into the presence of God, you're bringing yourself into the presence of God and you're practicing his presence and you're gonna get better at it. You're gonna get better at it. You're gonna get better at it. Another thing I would recommend that you do is fast. The idea behind fasting is not to lose weight. The idea, although that is one of the benefits, but the idea of of fasting is to say, instead of focusing on my flesh, my body, I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to take this time. The time it's, it's actually fasting. The idea in the Bible is is very spiritual, but it's also very practical. Also, it simply on the practical level, it simply means the time I was going to take to eat, I'm now going to take that time to be with Jesus. Concentrated time to be with Jesus. That's the idea of it, or in its most basic form, and it's very healthy. It's also something great for you to do if you're. Um, I will fast when I, when my, uh, when I'm finding that I'm getting too, um, uh, in giving myself what I want all the time, and I notice I can't stop. You know, when I say I'm not going to eat any more treats, and then I find that I'm, I'll just one more, that type of thing. And when that gets to a certain point, I think to myself, okay, I need to remember who, who my Lord is. It's not a, it's not a punishing myself thing it's just a reminder of who's in charge i'm following him he's not following me and that's a lot of what christianity has become i think in the west it's jesus come follow me rather than us saying okay i'm yours lord i'm following you okay fasting's a way to remind yourself of that it's good it humbles you put your it it, uh, buffets your body it's it's very good to do of course Historically, asceticism has taken it to the <laughs> far extreme. But, with the, but I think it's because that be, has become the end in and of itself. If I fast, I'm holy. No, 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 no. You're already holy. You're already in the presence of God. You're reminding yourself. You're getting rid of more distractions. You're shedding off some things. Come, have a, a time where you, you fast. Do those things. And then finally, the, I think these are the core there's a lot of, there actually there's a lot of different, there's silence, which is great, solitude. Um, I try to once a month just get away and just sit in my car and stare out a window or you know, some, something. I just try to get alone. Solitude's another, uh, so this one, but here's the one I want to really put on you, community, community. This is a must. This is why we're here. This is why, you know, if you're not involved in a home group, get involved in a home group. We're going to try to start up some more in February. We're going to try to revamp things and get, our goal is to get everybody in a home group by February, that everyone's plugged into a group. A home group is not another sermon. A home group is where you live life with other like-minded believers. It's a place where you talk. It's a place where you listen. It's a place where you pray for each other. It's a place where you enjoy pleasure together. I'm hoping that every home group will enjoy a meal, something yummy, a cup of something hot, you know, something good, and, and you're enjoying the warmth and the comfort together. You're being together in God's presence. That is absolutely essential for your spiritual health. Absolutely. Those are what I would recommend starting, but you don't have to wait for us to get it going. Start it now. Have people over. Have a Sabbath and invite someone over. I'm going to have a Sabbath meal. Do you want to come? And host somebody. And laugh with them. Get to know them. Listen to them. Talk, with, talk about Jesus with them. 
share your testimonies. That's what we're going to try to do for this Thanksgiving meal in a few weeks, if hopefully Emmanuel is, is good with it. But I think they will be. We're going to try to get together, and we're just going to try to be together and enjoy each other's presence. And as followers, apprentices of Jesus together, we're going to share some testimony. Some people are going to use the mic to share how they came to know the Lord in the first place. We're going to get to know one another, and it's going to be beautiful. It's absolutely essential. Be here for it. We, we picked a time where you're here anyway. <laughs> you know, just stay after church. It's not an extra event. Just stay longer and be together. Pray. Fast. Come together in community. Have a Sabbath. I, those four things is my challenge to you. Now, here's the thing. Don't beat your, it's a practice. Don't beat yourself up. You're practicing Okay? Which means you're not going to be able to run a marathon tomorrow. But you can run maybe one mile. And then maybe you can run a few feet after that. And then take a break for a week. And then try again. Okay? This is grace. Grace filled. It's not judging anyone's spirituality or Christianity. Nothing like that. It's, it's because we love him. And I just want to be with him. Isn't that what it's like? Have you ever, um, for me, I, sometimes I get carried away, I drink way too much coffee or tea, and then Nicole, for dinner, she puts a big thing of water in front of my thing, in front of my meal, a big one, and I think to myself, eh, I'd rather have something else, you know, but then I take a drink, and I go, and my body Respond and I go, oh, <laughs> and Nicole's like, wow, you know, because my body goes, this is what I've been wanting the whole time. And that's what it's like when you start to practice the presence of God. You might go into it dragging your feet. It's okay, don't beat yourself up. You might be distracted, but you get there and you finally, and by the way, warning, your mind and your body are always the last people to show up for the party. So expect that. It's going to take some time for your body and your mind to kind of go, fine. But once they do, you will go, oh yeah, this is what it's all about. It's all about this. It's all about you. It's all about being with you. And I just want more. Lord, you are the fire from which we were all forged. And therefore, we are longing for you in every endeavor. In every endeavor, in every enterprise, in everything that we are striving for, we are really striving for you. Like Augustine said, I was restless until I found my rest in you. But Jesus, we forget, we forget that you're a rabbi that has called us to follow you so that we could be with you first. Just to, that's the reward in and of itself, to watch you, to study you, to sleep next to you, to uh, eat with you, to bring you into our families, to, to follow you everywhere that you would take us. Lord, so that we could be completely, utterly, from the inside out, a complete overhaul transformed little by little, as we practice your ways. 
Lord, I know that most people today don't even think change is possible, but it is. In fact, Lord, I know that Christianity is nothing if, it has, if, it, if it's not about change. Transformation, deep change, welling up from the inside. Slowly, but surely, transformation as we abide in you and live in you. Lord, so that we can be on mission and we can do what you would do if you were us. May that be the path that was before us. Calvary Wallingford, to be with Jesus, to become like him, and to do what he would do if he were us. (laughs) I love it. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.